This episode is based on a memoir written by former special FBI agent Jeffrey Reinick and authored by award-winning journalist Mary Lee Strong, titled In the Name of the Children, An FBI Agent's Relentless Pursuit of the Nation's Worst Predators. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Sensitive content involving violence and sexual abuse against children may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He was not considered a suspect at the time this occurred. We do not have an established link between him and other individuals that we are looking at at this point. The judges ruled the confession is admissible, and so it's going to be part of all the evidence that the jury's going to get to consider. It's uh, been a very uh, trying period. Uh, I know Yance has uh, been with the children and, and has really suffered through this, and uh, this is uh, closure. When you think of the uh, horrors that, that he's caused, uh, the sooner this is over, the better. Previously, in Part 1 of the Yosemite Murders. In 1999, a total of four women had mysteriously vanished near Yosemite National Park. Their bodies were eventually discovered, and they had been brutally murdered. After a massive investigation, the FBI felt confident they had the perpetrators behind bars. However, Special FBI agent Jeffrey Reinick felt differently. After being requested to bring in a Cedar Lodge handyman named Kerry Stainer for what Reinick thought was just some routine questioning, he was shocked to hear Stainer suggesting he had something to do with the women's murders and that he wanted to speak to Jeffrey alone. Join me now as we reveal more of Kerry's horrific confessions to Jeffrey Reinick. We'll also hear from Reinick himself as he speaks openly about his career and how he came to develop his unique empathy-based approach to interrogating suspects, a method that made him tremendously successful gaining confessions, but a gift that did not come without a price. By 5 a.m., Stainer knew he needed to start cleaning things up. He placed Sylvina in the trunk with Carol and loaded up all their belongings into the back seat of the rental. He also wet some towels in the bathroom to make it look like they'd showered before they checked out. He told Reinick that he'd watched numerous forensic shows about Ted Bundy and other serial killers where he'd learned about trace evidence and how to clean up his tracks. He planned to come back later and clean up the room a little bit more. 
thinking he may have left some hair on the bedsheets. Because Juliana had been so cooperative, Stainer felt as though he loved her and wanted to keep her a while longer, so he decided to move her to another location. As he drove away from Cedar Lodge, with Juliana in the backseat and Carolyn Sylvina in the trunk, he started to ask her questions. He discovered later that everything she told him was a lie. She even lied about her name and told him it was Sarah. Despite everything she had already painfully endured, and in the midst of her fear, she was doing everything she could to protect herself from the merciless madman who had abducted her. As the sun rose, Carrie knew he couldn't drive around with her much longer. It was at that moment that he knew he needed to kill her, and he pulled into the Don Pedro Vista Point. He started to sob and speak quietly as he recounted this part of his grisly confession. He actually felt as though he had developed a connection with Juliana and didn't want his fantasy to end. He said he then carried Juliana down the trail in his arms, like a groom carrying his bride over the threshold. Reinick asked him why he was crying, and Steiner responded by saying, just remembering it. Reinick asked him if he cried when he killed her, and he said he didn't think so. He said he stopped at one point along the trail and assaulted her one last time. Then he told her he couldn't keep her, but he wished he could. He then pulled out a knife and killed her. But his mission was far from over. After killing Juliana, he walked back up to the rental. He opened the trunk and proceeded to cut off Carol's nightgown. He knew if she was found wearing it, investigators might realize she'd been taken from the Cedar Lodge. He also knew enough about forensic evidence that he removed the duct tape from both Carol and Sylvina, realizing his fingerprints might be on it. As he drove off with their bodies in the trunk, he wasn't sure what to do with them. At one point, he thought he might drive the car into a lake, but abandoned the idea when he saw some fishermen. Along the way, he threw out the women's clothing he had collected from the room in a pillowcase and tossed them into a dumpster. As he was driving, he came across a back road where he would eventually set the car on fire. But it wouldn't happen on that day. At that point, he only intended on ditching the vehicle with the bodies left inside. He then took some of the women's belongings, such as Carol's purse, and scattered them around the vehicle. He wiped down the car with a glove to remove any possible fingerprints and using his pocket knife carved, we have Sarah, into the hood of the car. He wanted to make it look like multiple people had committed the crime and that Juliana was being held hostage somewhere. Before Stainer left the scene, he made sure to grab $200 from Carol's wallet so he could take a cab home. But he didn't go directly home. First, 
he stopped off for some breakfast. Disgusted, Reinick asked, You were hungry? What were you thinking? Were you grieving for the person you lost? Stainer responded by saying, I wouldn't say that. I guess I was just concerned for myself, actually. He later went back to room 509 and noticed blood on one of the pillows and also in the bathtub. Having learned about luminol testing, he made sure to scrub the bathtub with bleach and replace the bed sheets. Having cleaned up the room, he was still afraid he might get caught, so he decided to drive back where he had ditched the car and set it on fire. After pouring gasoline through the interior of the rental, he used a match and set it ablaze. As he ran away from the vehicle towards his truck, he heard a loud bang and remembered he had left the gasoline canister and headed back to retrieve it. Before leaving for the last time, he removed the credit card insert from Carol's wallet. He intended to throw investigators off the track even further by tossing the cards out at an intersection in downtown Modesto. Reinick was confused as to why he had gone to such great lengths to remove all evidence that would link him to the murders and then sent a letter with a map to the FBI. He told Reinick it was for closure for Juliana's family, and for himself. He then admitted that he'd felt completely out of control and had intended on killing his girlfriend and daughters again just two days ago. Reinick believed that if Carrie hadn't been caught, he would have continued to kill young women. The entire interview lasted six long hours. Reinick assured Stainer he would only tell his family that he had done some bad things but would leave out all the details. He then left Stainer with some paper and a pen and asked him to write the letter of apology they had talked about earlier. When he came back, he found that Stainer had only written one letter, and it was to Juliana. Dear Julie, There are not enough words in the universe or days left in my life to express to you how sorry I am for what I've done to you, your mother, and your friend. My weakness to control my evil desires has led us both to this crossroad. You, on one hand, have crossed over to a place of which I can now only dream of going, and I'm going someplace far worse. My thoughts of you are of a very sweet young woman who had a wonderful life ahead of her, but as it turns out, I destroyed any hope of that. No more days with the family or friends. No more breaths of fresh air. No more sun shining on your face. No more dreams of a life to be. All of it thrown away like yesterday's trash. My memories of your last few seconds will haunt me till the day I die, and rightfully so, the things I told you before I ended your life are things I've never been able to tell anyone else. Perhaps it was fear of rejection, or perhaps it was just plain fear of love. An emotion I have never experienced from anyone but my parents. But I can't blame my emotion, or lack of, for what I did. 
I know right from wrong and don't think I am insane, but there is a craziness that lurks in my mind. Thoughts I've tried to subdue as long as I can remember. I'm just sorry that you were there when the years of fantasizing my darkest dreams became a reality in the flesh. Reinick had not only successfully gained a full confession from Carrie Stainer on all four murders, he did it without giving into any of his terms. As well, he'd managed to get him to apologize for what he had done. His confession and apology would never bring back Juliana, Sylvina, Carol, or Joey, but it would finally give their families the answers they had been looking for and perhaps a measure of peace. Jeffrey Reinick hadn't used intimidation, threat, or force to gain Carrie Stainer's confession. Instead, he showed kindness, empathy, and understanding. Jeffrey had sensed that despite Stainer's appetite for violence, he still had some good in him, and he treated the killer as a person not as a monster, a tactic not taught to him at Quantico. In 2018, Jeffrey Reinick published his memoir, co-authored by Mary Lee Strong, titled In the Name of the Children, an FBI agent's relentless pursuit of the nation's worst predators. In this jarring and powerful book, the now-retired agent discusses at length his unconventional approach to interviewing killers like Carrie Stainer. As far back as Jeffrey could remember, he always dreamed of becoming an FBI agent. He remembers being mesmerized when a few FBI agents showed up at a mobster funeral service where his father had been working as an undertaker. And they were everything he imagined them to be. He watched them intently as they took down the license plates of the cars that had shown up to the service. He knew that's what he wanted to be when he grew up, and there was nothing that could sway him. We were fortunate to speak with Jeffrey earlier this summer before his book was released. Since I was age 10, I wanted to be an FBI agent. That's all I ever wanted in the world, was to be an FBI agent. I never thought that would happen to me. And when I had an opportunity to go to work for the FBI as a clerk, I did that. And then shortly after I got there, they stopped the program. So I went back to school at night and got the equivalent of another undergraduate degree in accounting. And I applied as a special agent accountant. And that's how I got in. I was shocked when I got in. You're up to the moon with excitement and expectation. Plus the fact you know, you work very hard to accomplish that. And when you do accomplish it, you go through this kind of void of, okay, what's next? And going to Quantico was a dream come true. At Quantico, where the FBI trains its agents, Jeffrey developed an interest in the psychology of perpetrators, especially psychopaths, people whose inability to experience remorse enables them to commit horrific crimes for personal pleasure. 
at Quantico, there was a well-known profiler named Roy Hazelwood. And through him, I learned about a book that's named Without Conscience. It's written by Dr. Robert Hare. And in his book, he puts forward his belief, theory, whatever you want to call it, that there are some people that are born without the ability to feel emotion. And those people are people we see as psychopaths because we would expect them to react from something they've done that's so heinous and they have no reaction. You know, they could kill a child in the morning and then go to lunch, things like that. And the book gave me the ability to know that some people in our society just aren't going to feel anything. And no matter how much you talk to them or try and reach their good, it's just not there. Jeffrey's realization that pure psychopaths are rare, that even the most violent criminals have some good in their personalities, even slivers of morality, influenced his empathetic approach to interviewing. I do believe that most people, a great majority of people, do have good in them and do care and feel and want to feel a sense of value. And that's how my interviews started becoming what they were. My interviewing is simply a product of my own development, something that I used something and it worked. I would remember it and hold it for the next time. After Quantico, Jeffrey worked in Chicago and then spent five years in New York City. As his daily effort to become an FBI agent was especially grueling, he asked to be transferred to Sacramento where he hoped his commute to work would be easier. But before he could move his family to California, the health of Jeffrey's younger son, Joe, became a grave concern. Joe suffered from pediatric nephretic syndrome, a condition that impairs normal kidney function. Fortunately, over the next year, his son recovered and Jeffrey and his family eventually relocated to California. The experience of watching his child suffer and nearly die made Jeffrey more sympathetic to the anguish felt by parents of missing and murdered children. This hard-won sympathy helped him when he began to work child assault cases in Northern California. in Sacramento the abduction of a seven-month-old baby named Frankie Proctor. It's not uncommon for local law enforcement to not want the FBI around because a lot of times the FBI can come in heavy-handed or the FBI portrays the case to be something that it's not. So the FBI isn't always loved, but it's up to us to earn the respect. I convinced the case detective named Greg Stewart that we could help and use our resources and polygraph. And so that began us working the case together. And also the FBI, my FBI squad, and the Sacramento Police Department, we were all working together. By the end of the week, because we had all been working so hard, we were able to recover the baby. And for me, I think people had seen me in a manner that I had never even knew existed within me. I was so driven that Greg and I, we barely slept. We were staying together as much as possible. We 
were together when we rescued the child. It was, I don't want to call it an awakening as much as an unveiling of a part of myself I didn't know was there. With the FBI, a lot of times, if you do good on a case, then they start giving you other cases like that. In this case, I started being assigned the child abduction cases. When you say child abduction, that will turn into child murder, child sexual assault, you know, child torture, whatever you can imagine. And I started feeling a strong passion. I responded to a case in 1996, and that boy was eight years old. And my boy was eight years old at the time. And I came home from that case, and it had affected me. Working on these cases involving children prompted Jeffrey to become increasingly interested in understanding the distorted thinking that drives some people to hurt others. Slowly over the years, started realizing that these people that do these horrible things, there's reasons that they do them. And I became interested, almost obsessed with wanting to know why these people did these things. Reinick's tendency to share his experience with others when he interviewed them, along with his willingness to look for the good in even the most dangerous suspects, departed from many of the standard interrogation techniques used by law enforcement. The interrogation style most commonly taught is called the Reed Technique, a technique that has been criticized as of late for inducing false confessions like those depicted in the Netflix series the confession tapes, and the technique was developed by a Chicago cop named John Reed and was meant to train interrogators to act as human lie detectors. In the same way, a polygraph examiner would ask basic questions at the beginning of an interview in order to establish a baseline response. Law enforcement using this technique will do the same. They will also take note of any physical signs of stress to determine if someone is lying by using nonverbal behavior, such as looking down, folding one's arms, or repeatedly touching one's face. However, these actions could also very well be the personal tics or ingrained behavior patterns that have nothing to do with anxiety, much less guilt. With this technique, critics have also said that interrogators tend to do 90% of the talking, while the suspect only speaks 10% of the time. The read technique is probably most recognized for its tactic of using information that would be considered deceitful, such as when interrogators say things to their suspect like they failed their polygraph test, or that they have an eyewitness or possibly even DNA evidence that would incriminate them, even when it's a lie. However, this technique is almost the complete opposite of the method that Reinick chose to use. The re-technique is dedicated towards getting a confession. And some people will interview for personal reasons that we're not aware of, They'll believe the person in front of them is guilty and just work on trying to get a confession. 
there are other times where the interviewer has a personal goal in wanting to get a confession because it will help his career. Good agents, as they pursue leads and collect evidence, Reinig holds, must strive ceaselessly for the truth. And if they find out they've been working with incorrect assumptions, they need to abandon them. Such was the case for Jeffrey when Kerry Stainer, the Yosemite killer, opened up about his guilt. I'm proud to say that just as I've been able to get guys to confess, there's one or two instances where we go in with a guy and we're questioning him. We think we have evidence and he just or she denies it, denies it to the point where we have to reconsider what we think we know. And in those instances, you know, we have to look at ourselves and say, maybe we're wrong. It's not only incumbent upon us to get statements of confession, it's also incumbent upon us to take people that are talking to us and and ensure that they truly are responsible for the crime. In the Carrie Stanner case, their word was in the newspaper that other people were in jail. And if you read the book, you'll see I wasn't sure when Carrie Stanner started talking about these murders that he could really be the one because according to our office, there were other people that were in jail for other reasons. Reinick recognizes that his personal approach to interviewing will not appeal to everyone. There are some guys that are going to listen to what we're talking about and say, I am never going to do that. I am never going to put myself in that position. And then there are other guys who are sitting there and they'll say, I'll try it. I did not start out to create a interview technique. I just did what I did. But the people I worked with started adopting things from me, just like I adopted things from others, and their interviews were successful. Sharing personal experiences and disclosing emotions, Jeffrey learned, can bring comfort to victims' families. When a child goes missing and you go to meet the family, as a parent, we know if anything were to happen to our children, it's something that we'll never get over. And so how you deal with that family and treat them is as important as working the case. And so when I would go with these families, I would share myself. I would tell them that I had been through a critical illness of my son, and I'd tell them what I would do. And I think information and sharing yourself is a gift that we can all give to somebody else, and I give that gift to people I meet. Serving in the FBI for over three decades enabled Jeffrey to fulfill many goals he had set for himself early in life. Years of visiting crime scenes, however, and sharing the deepest parts of his personality with perpetrators and grieving families have not been without consequences. me a long time to learn and understand, but the best way for me to go home is to go home to my wife and to tell her everything and to share it with her. In the beginning, I would share the stories with her, but I wouldn't share how I was feeling because I wasn't sure myself what I was feeling. There was an instance where I'd been to a crime scene and afterwards I was uh, sitting at dinner with my family 
and I realized that they were talking to me and I wasn't even really focusing on anybody. I was looking like in the distance. I didn't know what it meant. For me, I have not been able to come to terms with it. And my life is littered with a lot of uh, emotional reaction to the trauma I've experienced. And it's affected my health. It's affected my relationships with my family. It affects me. Invariably, the guys who don't talk to people, who don't get help, they're going to end up looking at the barrel of their weapon. I did that. But then when you realize the pain and anguish you would cause the people you love, you come away from that and you commit that you're going to live and there's no way of going on without trying to address what's happening. When he looks back at his career and thinks about the ways he's been able to help children and their loved ones, Jeffrey Reinick recognizes that the dividends his efforts have yielded surpass the emotional and physical cost he's suffered. I am not immune from getting angry or feeling a sense of aggression. I didn't consciously decide to sacrifice myself but what I realized was the closure you can give to a victim family who's lost their child by giving of yourself is so important that I feel an obligation to do it. It is clear that Jeffrey Reinick's integrity and compassion as a human being permeated through his work as an FBI agent. The empathy Reinick showed not only to the countless families of the victims' cases he worked tirelessly to solve, but also to the perpetrators themselves, was what granted him the ability to bring answers to many cases that may not have otherwise been solved. Jeffrey Reinick retired from the FBI in 2006. He lives in the Sacramento area with his devoted wife and a house full of animals. I think we're at our best when we're helping others. It makes us feel good. My wife is notorious for rescuing animals. We have had baby deer brought home. We had an owl brought home. She also went out and captured a coyote cub. And then one time I watched her rescue a bird that had fallen out of a nest. And she literally, she, she researched it and she raised it. But you know, for us, and I'm sure for a lot of people in the world, when you do something like that, it makes you feel better. It gives you a feeling of, of meaning. And when I worked, I always had partners. Now I'm retired. My wife is not only my wife and best friend, but now she's my partner. We do things together. In January 2012, I was summoned to California's death row by a serial killer who then revealed to me the locations of six victims. Well, I've gotten to meet those families, and there's still a lot wrong there that hopefully will be resolved. But my wife is as much a part of that as I am. They call up and ask for my wife, or they have her number and call her just like they call me. My wife and I are going to try and enjoy life, but invariably someone will come around and we'll get involved in something. After his wife and daughter's murder, 
Yen spoke to reporters following a memorial service held at Don Pedro Lake. He said, I'm dealing with emotions that I've been told to expect, yet when they happen to me, they're completely unexpected. Reaching for the phone to call my wife is one of them. Sun told reporters he found it incomprehensible that his wife, who worked to help abused children avoid a life of crime, would end up a murder victim. Carol was known as a local hero in her community for her heart to protect those vulnerable, especially children. In 1984, the sons adopted their first son, Jonah. Carol and Yen's biological daughter, Juliana, was just a toddler at that time. Nine months after that, they adopted Jonah's infant half-sister, Gina, and later another little boy named Jimmy. Carol, who had grown up with two adopted siblings, had become passionately committed to saving abused children one by one. Carol had put in thousands of volunteer hours to help start services for abused and fostered children in her county. Jens reported always thinking of Juliana as a tomboy and was surprised when she decided to take up cheerleading. He said, Imagine you raised a child from a baby, going through music programs, through grammar school and high school, and someone snatches her away and murders her. Juliana's friends remember her as someone who was always full of energy, happy and spontaneous. Like her mother, she too cared about the welfare of others and joined a campus group to confront issues of violence and race. In 2003, the Sun family received $1 million in a wrongful death suit filed against the Cedar Lodge Hotel for being negligent in protecting their guests. Yen's son stated he planned to use the money to take care of his three teenage children and pay for their college educations. Not too long after the tragic loss of their daughter, Carol Sun's parents set up a foundation called the Carol Sund Carrington Memorial Reward Foundation, offering rewards and assisting families with missing person cases. After a decade of helping other families, in 2009, the foundation decided to shift its support to the Lacey and Connor Search and Rescue Fund, an organization established by Lacey Peterson's mother and had been previously sponsored by the organization Carol's parents has funded. Jose Peloso, Silvina's father, admitted to reporters during Carrie Stainer's trial that he wanted to kill him. He said, I could do justice on my own, and I know I could do it. Throughout the trial, I think I've had more than 10 opportunities to kill him. My other daughter, that's the only thing that keeps me from it. I would have killed him. That's the only thing. A private plane brought 16-year-old Silvina Pelosa's body back to her home to Argentina. Silvina's casket, draped in purple, red, and white flowers, was carried by a group of men, led by her weeping father. In March 2018, 
Joey Armstrong was honored on International Women's Day by the organization she worked for called Nature Bridge. As someone who inspired others to be courageous, to follow their hopes and dreams, and to be brave in the face of adversity, Joey will always be remembered as a bright light to all that knew her. Full of laughter and love, creativity and spunk, someone who gifted the world with her glowing smile and warm heart. It was Joey's desire to create a more idyllic world that inspired her decision to become an environmental science educator for what was formerly known as Yosemite Institute. As Joey once said, my passion lies with teaching children about their environment and I have dedicated all my efforts toward it. Joey's family chose to honor her legacy by finding a way to motivate other young women to be as brave, courageous, and tenacious as she was. And so they started the Armstrong Scholars Program. Each year, 13 girls aged 15 to 18 are chosen to participate in an empowering summer backpacking adventure in the High Sierra of Yosemite National Park. Carrie Stainer stole the lives of four vibrant women amidst one of the most beautiful places in the world. However, their families are determined not to allow his egregious acts to stain the memory and the love they had for them. Our hearts go out to the Sund and Peloso family, to the community and friends who love them so very much. And to Jeffrey Reinick, we extend our utmost gratitude, despite the personal sacrifices you and your family endured. Thanks to you and so many other dedicated men and women working in law enforcement, our world is a safer place for our children and our loved ones. I'd like to thank Justin Evans from the Generation Y podcast in the peripheral for narrating Carrie Stainer's apology letter. And a special thank you to Jeffrey Reinick for taking the time to talk to us about this case. We've included links to his book in the show notes. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Murderish. Hey everyone, I'm Jamie, and I host a podcast called Murderish, which takes you inside stories of murder and other creepy events. The first episode of Murderish lets listeners be a fly on the wall for a first-degree murder trial. The story is told from a juror's perspective as I was that juror. If you are a true crime junkie and need to know every detail, you'll feel right at home with this podcast. Follow Murderish on Twitter at MurderishPod, and on Facebook at Murderish Podcast. And don't worry, this doesn't mean you're a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. And Pretend Radio. I'm Javier with Pretend Radio. And this season, I'm embedding myself in a cult. Throw him to the ground and get his devils out! 
will turn on each other. Let me make it really clear. I am Jamie's mother, but what he says is lies. Babies will be ripped away from their parents. It, it's hurtful to see them and know that their lives could have been much different in a, in a home outside of there. We're not letting go of God's will with each other. And the powerful? Well, they'll be held accountable. Um, as a district attorney, it's probably better for me not to comment. <laughs> Why is that? Why is that? Survivors are not holding back, and the church is not backing down. Many in the media have tried to get in front of the accused cult leader, Jane Whaley, and have failed. We have asked you to leave. But somehow, I got in. How are you, sir? Yeah, yeah um, I'm here to speak with Jane Whaley. She invited me to service today. Yeah. This season, we're going deeper into the Word of Faith Fellowship than ever before. This story is on a collision course. And it's not going to end well. Why would anybody want to harm him? Sometimes we hurt other people by hurting people they love. Pretend Radio, Season 3, The Prophet. What's the matter with us? We're not going to spark God's will! The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E I can feel the madness I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in Cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door